0: Hi, I'm Amanda. I'm your annoying coworker that won't eat a chick-fil-a because they support anti-LGBTQ organizations. And yeah, I know they allegedly don't do that anymore, but who wants to support a company whose leadership is so homophobic and transphobic that they would still make a big deal of donating to these organizations in the first place? I am also your annoying coworker that won't take a cycle class because that company is such a huge supporter of Trump that I may as well just donate directly to his campaign. Why am I so annoying? Because I believe that in a capitalist society, hint, we're living in one right now. Our money is as powerful as our vote. When we buy things from brands that make the world a worse place, we are casting a vote in favor of the bad things they are doing. Whether it's exploiting marginalized people, creating a culture of fat phobia and racism, or just plain supporting the orange bigot in the White House. When we withhold our money and give it to brands that are doing good things, we not only force the bad companies to rethink their practices, we also help good brands grow their businesses, making ethical practices the standard rather than the exception. That said, it's hard to know where to cast your vote in the world of fashion. The industry is veiled in layers upon layers of mystery, and there's so much spin. Inclusive, sustainable, ethical, conscious, eco-friendly. What do these terms even mean? Do they mean anything? Are they just marketing messages? I'm going to be honest with you. I've been on furlough from my job for more than three months thanks to the coronavirus pandemic. And while I've spent most of my time worrying about my family's future and fretting about money and worrying about all the other things that all of you are worrying about, I've also found myself becoming more and more engaged with Reddit. There I have found a sense of community. This is not a commercial for Reddit, by the way. I often find myself answering questions about all kinds of fashion related issues from inclusive sizing to influencer collab lines to why do you think this brand went out of business? And it feels so good to share my experience. As I've been doing this, I realized if you don't work in the industry, nothing about it makes sense. My mission with Clothes Horse is simple, to educate all of you about the fashion and retail industries. By revealing the complex machine underneath the spectacle of trends and buzzwords, you can make better decisions about where to cast your vote. By now, you are probably want to know why I'm declaring myself the expert in this area. I've been working in the fashion and retail industry for the majority of my adult life. I began as a part-time seasonal sales associate for a large retail chain. My first day at work was my birthday, and I stood under an air conditioning vent for 10 hours folding t-shirts. From there, I moved into buying as the first person to be moved from the stores to the home office in more than a decade. To be honest... I didn't even know that buying was a job. I assumed I would spend my days smoking cigarettes and looking at fashion magazines. Sounds pretty cool, right? In reality, it's lots of spreadsheets, applied mathematics, and critical thinking with a splash of shopping, (laughs) a little, tiny splash of shopping. And since then, I've worked for large corporations, buzzy startups, and, you know, like some medium-sized e-commerce brands. Along the way, I've met so many incredible, intelligent women that I am honored to call my friends. They will be jumping in to discuss their areas of expertise and share their insights on fashion, style, and spending your money the right way. In our inaugural episode, we will be starting at the beginning, or what I think of as the beginning. Not promising that we will be answering life's biggest questions, because TBH, I'm not even sure what they are, but we will be diving into the cost of the things you buy, mostly the literal cost with a dash of figurative cost. Our special guest is Janine. She brings a ton of experience in the area of merchandise planning to the table. Don't worry, we'll explain what that means. And this is just what we are going to need as we untangle all of the factors that explain why we pay what we pay for what we buy. Try saying that five times fast. Are you ready? Let's get started. I'm really excited today for our first episode and our very first guest to have Janine here to tell us a little bit about the cost of the things we're buying, like what's happening there, right? Uh, so Janine, I've known you since way back in the day when I worked at ModCloth and we were sort of like long distance friends because you were in San Francisco and I was in LA, but I still thought you were pretty awesome. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and you know, like what you do?
1: Yeah, so I have worked in the retail and fashion industry for about ten years, a little bit more. Um, I started out my career at Banana Republic, um, and then I moved on to ModCloth. So. I have experience working in larger corporations as well as what it's like to be in a smaller startup. And I've definitely seen a lot during my years uh, across (laughs) both of those companies. Um, And during that time, I really worked primarily in merchandise planning, which is the function that manages inventory and profitability.
0: So I'm I'm going to tell you right now that most people do not know what a planner is, much less that that job exists at all. So why don't you tell us a little bit of what a planner is?
1: Yeah, I did not know that this job existed actually before I applied for it. Um, My background originally was in finance and accounting, and I just wanted to use those skills and work in fashion. So I just started browsing jobs at the Gap that I thought had some type of financial function to them. And I found this job. So I definitely didn't know what it was before, um, I started working in this capacity either. Um, so a planner is actually similar to what people think of is as being a buyer. Um, I sometimes tell people it's like the number side or the finance side of being a buyer in a lot of fashion and retail companies. Um, there is a role that is a buyer and that person um, sources inventory and product and then buys it. Um, But in a lot of other companies, they also split that job into two functions where someone's just in charge of sourcing the styles and aesthetically figuring out what we should buy. And then there's a, a financial component and an inventory component, which is the merchandise planner that, Um, figures out how much to buy, and then maximizes the profitability of that inventory. So merchandise planning is really managing the movement and profitability of inventory from when that very first PO is placed um, until it goes on markdown or sells out. And the main objective of the job is just to try to maximize the profit that's made off of the inventory that the company owns, while also minimizing the risk of owning too much of something that nobody wants to buy, which invariably always happens.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're not you don't pick 100% the right product 100% of the time. It is 100%. It's sort of like educated gambling, I guess. I would add um, from my perspective as a career buyer that I always tell people the best advice I can give them is that your planner should be your best friend. And you should be collaborating rather than arguing. (laughs) So, you know, we're like peanut butter and chocolate, you know, better together. (laughs) And I would
1: definitely say that I have been really lucky in my relationships over the years to have had super amazing, collaborative, wonderful, like arguably loving (laughs) relationships (laughs) with the merchandisers or buyers that I've worked with. Um, But oftentimes it can also be a little contentious and it's meant to there's meant to be push and pull because the buying side is typically always like buy everything buy more at the highest cost ever who cares whatever money doesn't matter and the planner is always like we have a budget we have a margin to hit uh you know we need to make money do you really need five thousand of that thing (laughs) you know blah 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 so there's there's definitely um checks and balances but that's kind of the nature of the beast in in a good way
0: in a, yeah, it's a, it's a great push-pull relationship, and it's so essential. It's like the balance of power is there. So the question I, I hear most on social media are like, why is this so expensive? Why is this so cheap? Why is there such a wide spectrum of, say, how much a pair of jeans could cost? Like, why is just the pricing of clothes all over the place? So today we're going to dig into that. And actually, now you understand why Jeannie's here, because she is an expert in all things cost-related. I love a fun fact. I think a fun fact, you know, it's a great way to you know to sort of set the context and uh, have some fun. While the consumer price index, which is sort of the average price of all the things we buy, has risen by 70% since the 1990s, the price of apparel has actually decreased by 6%. Wow. That's, that's wild. It's pretty crazy. That's pretty crazy. So to put that in some context, if you're not as much of a nerd for economics as Janine and I are... Uh, In 1990, the average new car price for just like a mid-range, decent car was about $15,000, which sounds so cheap and exciting. Uh, Meanwhile, in 2020, it's more like $26,000. So huge increase. But somehow, your jeans actually cost a few dollars less than they did in 1990, which was 30 years ago. I mean, people yeah, people are making more money now than they were in 1990, just from a purely like dollars and cents, not talking about like cost of living increases, but it's re- it's a disconnect.
1: Yeah. Because I mean, for inflation alone, you would expect an increase in ticket price or an increase in like the, the number of dollars paid. And it's crazy
0: to think that you're paying less. <laughs> it's, it's so crazy. So that's what we're going to dig into today. I guess Just to start things off, we think we're paying a lot of money for clothes, but we're not. That's gonna be the summary of us. We're gonna tell you why, like, why clothes are so cheap. So, the first ingredient in any garment is gonna be the fabric, right? And you probably know this, and maybe you don't, but nicer, more natural, sustainable fabrics are more expensive. Um, And you couldn't see me because we're recording this, but I said sustainable in quotation marks because I have a lot of problems with that term. So every time I say that word, just assume it's in quotes. Um, so whereas polyester blends are really cheap. So Janine, I already know how you feel about polyester because we talked about this. So why don't you just lay it out for us?
1: I say to my friends whenever anybody talks about polyester is if you're wearing polyester, you may as well be wearing like a plastic trash bag because polyester is actually plastic. Um, and actually, I was wearing, it was, it was actually just a 50-50 cotton poly blend t-shirt today when I went out on a bike ride, and I wasn't going that fast. I wasn't going that far. And by the time I got home, I was sweating, and I just had to take it off because it's literally like wearing plastic. Um, it It literally is plastic. So I hate polyester. I slightly regret wearing... <laughs> buying and wearing this like 50 I didn't really realize it was I didn't really realize it was a 50 50 blend until after I walked away and to be fair it was a t-shirt I bought at a like a craft stand so I couldn't return it um but yeah polyester is disgusting
0: it is disgusting so I think when we think of of clothing we think of cotton right like that's always been the go-to like natural fabric for the garment industry but in 2011, prices reached their highest in 140 years. And you know why? Well, for one, 2008, it was the financial crisis. So demand for clothing in general fell pretty substantially. People just didn't have the disposable income. So therefore, the demand for cotton was pretty low. There are three countries in the world that produce more of, most of our supply of cotton. China, India, and maybe you didn't know this, the United States. So not selling cotton because we're not selling clothes turns into a huge economic crisis for the farmers of the world. I mean, obviously, like the farmers of cotton. So in 2009, China and India decided they were going to help their farmers out. So they began to buy up local stock of cotton, you know, just to protect the farmers. So this artificially led to prices rising globally. The U.S. sort of followed suit. That drove up the price of clothing immediately, right? But then... Weather conditions led to a shortage of cotton in 2011. So prices went up even more. So by the end of that year, the cost of cotton clothing increased by about 11%. And that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but designing and buying garments is all about pinching pennies. I mean, you know, it's all about like, can I, get, can I take 25 cents off this cost? So what happened? How did retailers adjust to this? Well, they began shifting their assortments into synthetic fibers, aka our good friend Polyester. I mean for one they're a lot less expensive to make. But even more important and this this is kind of the other reason we're start, we've been seeing polyester take over. After the financial crisis of 2008, customers had an increased appetite for what I like to call cheap and cheerful clothing, and this is when fast fashion really blew up. Think back to 2008. That was when Forever 21 became became more ubiquitous everywhere you went. Just there's a Forever 21. There's a huge one. They're expanding, they're new, they're new. So At the time, retailers thought customers might not like these synthetics. But maybe in time, after realizing how crappy these fabrics are or when they regained their financial situation, they would turn back to cottons and other natural fibers. But they were surprised to discover that customers did not care. They were like, "This is great. This is even cheaper. It's really bright. It doesn't get wrinkly. I'm sold."
1: Yeah, and I can say anecdotally when I back when I was at Banana Republic during this time, I started working there in June of 2010, and I was there until August of 2013. So I was there like in the peak of this cotton crisis, and it was crazy. Everybody was like, "How are we going to do this? What are we going to do?" Like, how do we maintain our same margin and we're going to talk about this a little bit later. Um, but maintain the margin and profitability that I had originally had on this garment when the cost has gone up. And the a, a logical thing to do is to raise the price of that t-shirt or that sock or pair of jeans or whatever to say, okay, well, it, it now costs us, to make this thing that it used to cost us $12 to make. So we'll just pass on that price increase to the customer. But as Amanda mentioned, like in 2008, I mean, the idea of raising like prices to customers when you're still dealing with the fallout of the financial crisis was not an attractive option at all. Nobody wanted to raise prices. I mean, if anything, you were just like, that's just going to be death. Like if I raise the price on this thing, just no one's going to buy it and blah, blah, blah. And so really the only solution was to mix into synthetics and then hope for the best. Um, And then I can also say anecdotally, (laughs) when I talk to all of my friends, When I ask people if they know the difference between a natural fiber and a synthetic fiber, I mean, it's comical. Nobody knows the difference. Um, And so the customer is not also really informed, even if they were to look at the fiber content on the tag and it says uh, polyester versus viscose versus cotton. I I saw one the other day that was tensile. I don't even know what tensile is. there's always things on there that the customer, even if they are maybe a more informed customer, it's hard. It's hard to even know what they are.
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, I will say, pencil does come from cellulose, but it's also really bad for the environment in a different way because so many trees must be grown and then cut down, and there's a lot of processing in between. It's just as problematic. It's it's not made of plastic, but it's pretty pretty rough. Polyester itself and synthetics, as Janine mentioned, are plastic. They are derived from petrochemicals, um, generally a mixture of oil, water, coal, and air. They are non biodegradable. I mean, they may break down over several hundred or thousand years, but to me, that's non biodegradable for my purposes. Um, So when they go to the landfill, they just stay there forever. Furthermore, and this is almost the scarier part the production of synthetic fabric sheds microplastics into the water supply, and then, even worse, every time the owner of a synthetic garment does a load of laundry, more microplastics are released into the water supply. I read somewhere recently that the average person eats a whole credit card size serving of microplastics in one year from fish, from water, from agriculture. I mean, it's, it, it's so gross and disturbing. That's so gross. <laughs> It's so gross. It made my stomach sort of clench up when I said it out loud. It's just Um, depressing. So polyester is pretty depressing. And I think we're all agreeing, like, the more we hear about it, the less appealing it sounds. But I'm here to tell you that polyester accounts for 51% of textile production worldwide. So it's huge. And- you might think that you don't own a lot of polyester clothing because, you know, when you think of polyester, you're thinking of like the 70s and like leisure suits and it's really thick and it makes you sweaty and smelly. But the reality is that these synthetics sneak into our lives in a lot of different ways. So, Lycra, Lycra is in swimwear and workout clothes, uh, it's in some of your undergarments. Um, elastin is in any stretch jeans. Your jeggings are a problem. Uh, nylon in your tights and underwear. and as Janine mentioned, tees are ubiquitous. A lot of people think they hold their shape better. They are a little less shrink proof, if you will. They're soft. They're soft. They're definitely soft. And they take color really well. Like you can see why they're so desirable. Like when you see them on the shelf, you're not disgusted, you know, but it's, it, there's plastic in there. Um, a lot of those cozy synthetic fleeces are also hella synthetic. And my favorite synthetic is vegan leather aka Same. polyurethane leather uh which is completely oil basically with some other like rasmatas thrown in um and will melt possibly uh if exposed to flame but also you know the most inexpensive chiffon clothing is also polyester and a lot of sweaters now are a mixture of some sort of natural fiber like wool and then an acrylic blend acrylic also plastic
1: yeah acrylic is definitely plastic acrylic like acrylic nails that is the same that is the same acrylic
0: (laughs) yeah that's so gross (laughs) when you say it like that it's right there it's like okay so so far we have a list of gross things we've talked about already one is the eating a credit card worth of plastic and next to the acrylic nails in your sweater which is like so visceral (laughs) so uh then you're like okay well you know what I'm just going to go buy some natural fabrics like cotton or bamboo. And they're nice because they're biodegradable. They aren't perfect because they tend to be grown using a lot of pesticides and a whole lot of water. So the organic versions are a lot more expensive. So we're already starting to talk about, okay, if you want something to be good, if you will, it's going to be a little bit more expensive.
1: And the other natural fibers I feel like I think of are wool and silk. And I think people also naturally associate, naturally, uh, associate, <laughs> uh, those, those fibers with higher price, right? If you're getting something that has hundred yeah. percent wool, cashmere, alpaca, all of this stuff, silk for sure. Um, you just know it's going to be more expensive just because the way that it's produced, um, drives a higher price.
0: And if you do see cashmere or alpaca at a smoking hot price there's there's something going on there that's not good or it's a blend yeah exactly read your tags
1: they can say i I forget what the i I can't even remember this from banana republic we had these socks that were like we called them cashmere blend and i think i think you only had to have 15 percent cashmere
0: wow that's like nothing
1: (laughs) cashmere in it in order to call it cashmere blend um who knows what else it was mixed with, actually. I think it was <laughs> cotton, cotton and wool, but regardless, still um, still not cash – like, not, it's not 100% cashmere.
0: Yeah, I'm far from it. You know, I always – I don't know. This is something I've done my whole life, but I always think about percentages in terms of how I would feel about them as a grade in school. <laughs> so when I hear 15%, I'm like <laughs> – You failed. (laughs) You failed. This is a bad scene. And now you're going to have to explain this to your mom and you're definitely going to get grounded. So So there you go. I hear 15% and I'm panicked. Um, So, okay. So that's the fabric, right? And don't forget that it also has to be dyed, you know, and often, especially when we're dealing with these synthetics that are, as we've noted, plastic, uh, they need to be washed in chemicals to improve the feel of the fabric. And so both of these actions can be incredibly toxic and polluting. They use up a ton of water and they add cost into your garment. So just another thing to think about. Um, Next is print. My closet is full of prints. I think they're they're fun. Making your own prints is really expensive and you need a designer who specializes in prints or you can buy them from freelance print designers. You're going to have to pay them. So that's just going to add a little bit more onto the cost. And then you also, if you want to do your own print and not buy something that already exists out there in the market, you're also going to need a high minimum quantity of fabric, also known as an MOQ for custom design, because they're going to print a whole huge bolt. It's not the size of bolt of fabric that you see at (laughs) Joanne. Like we're talking, you need a truck to take it somewhere, right? So lots and lots lots of garments need to be made in order to have a custom print. And there's a lot of fabric waste involved you know, just cutting out the patterns. I mean, you know, if you've cut anything out, trace your hand on a piece of paper, cut it out. You got this weird scrap of paper left that you can't really do much with. And fabric is pretty similar in that way. Now factories want to get every last cent out of a roll of fabric. And, you know, fashion is like a, is a sense game. It's, it's not just dollars. There's like, it's all about shaving off every cent. And so they often use software to determine the layout of the pattern on the fabric in order to waste the least amount of fabric. But the reality is a lot of fabric is going to the landfill before anything is even sewn.
1: Or, or if they are cheap, um, the way that you set the, the pattern onto the fabric should go with the grain of the fabric. So either directly up and down or directly perpendicular and if you're trying to squeeze things in, you could turn things to the side slightly. And if you've ever had a knit shirt that (laughs) you put it in the wash and then the seams somehow are now going like diagonally across the front of your belly and then across your back, that's because they stretch the fabric to squeeze it in. And then it's just a way, it's just something that's done like when they're just being cheap. And then you have this, and it looks fine when you buy it because it's been steamed and pressed to sit the right way. But as soon as you wash it, the seams, like the fabric returns to its like natural shape. And then you just end up with these really wonky seams. I remember I had a pair of jeans where like the like seam was like coming down my leg and then slowly but surely like making its way across like to the middle
0: of my Uh... shin. Ah. I have been there. To telltale sign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also uh, matching up the print. Oh, sure. You know, making sure, sure that, like, weird and that it's all even. Uh, you know, at Mod Cloth, I developed a lot of printed dresses, all those novelty prints. And it would cost us a little bit extra. Like, when I say a little, I actually mean a couple dollars in cost to make sure that the images lined up. And you want that because otherwise it looks cheap or... There's the other thing, which I don't see as often now as I used to, but was was just a classic standard at Forever 21, where maybe the front of the shirt or dress was printed, but the back was solid. Do you remember that? Oh. Hate that. You can never turn around. (laughs) You like exit rooms backwards. Yeah, or you'd
1: have like embroidery or some type of embellishment. Yeah, on the on the yeah, the main body, but not on the sleeves.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sequined in the front, nothing in the back. I mean, maybe it'd be a knit t-shirt back. Just, sure. just just a night, just a nightmare. And those things when you wash them, they twist and are even crazier because they're often two different fabrics, not the same content. Things get weird, they get wobbly. I mean, there's just so many things that can happen there. But that's how you know that's got how you make that margin, which we're gonna get to in a few. So next, okay, we've got our fabric. That's like the main ingredient, right? But now we gotta like make it happen. And the sewing part of the process is called the make. So that's, you know, sewing it together for one, but also details. Every detail you add on is a little bit more cost. So, oh, you like pockets in your dresses? There's there's a dollar. You like a nice hidden zipper that's YKK and metal and going to last the test of time? Okay, there's a couple dollars. Uh, Do you want your seams to be, you know, Reinforced and hidden and lay flat, uh, no raw edges. I hate raw edge t shirts, raw edge knits in general, like make me so angry. Actually, I hate raw edge wovens too. Um, raw edge is when it's just cut and then it just frays as you wear it, drives me up the wall. So basically, what we're saying is the better it fits and feels and looks the more expensive it was to make. So going back to this idea of like, the front of the shirt has embroidery, but the sleeves in the back don't, you know? Like, that's how you keep prices low, right? So Janine, what is the detail that just makes or breaks a garment for you? Like something you just will not buy or will drive you up the wall?
1: I will say, even though I already said i did this, but, uh, the fabric is the most important to me. So I have to feel something, um, it has to be natural fiber. As I said, my aversion to polyester is, is real and strong. Um, and, and that also is really annoying to me because I get it. We're in 2020, but I hate, I hate shopping online because I want to touch everything. (laughs) And so actually for the COVID crisis that we're in right now, this is really great for my wallet because I'm just not buying anything because I can't touch anything. Um, so fabric is the number one. And then the other, uh, the other thing that just really, I cannot deal with is elastic around my waist. Like if you've ever ever bought a romper, like a a cheap, a cheaply made romper (laughs) that has an elastic waist on it to like cinch it in in the middle. Like the cheap way to do that is just put elastic in, versus and then sell it in a small, medium, large. Instead of actually like bringing the waist in with darts or like some other construction method to make it actually fit someone, and then you would have to sell it in more sizes. You'd have to sell it in like a four, six, eight, ten, twelve, or something like that. You couldn't sell it in small, medium, large. But the cheap way to do it is with a, a zipper, and just the idea that's where the food goes. Like, I don't want any elastic (laughs) on on my belly, you know? And of course, like I wear pants that have a waist and stuff like that, but I hate the idea of like a stretchy piece of elastic, like, like just constricting itself around my stomach. And same, same with any elastic sleeve, like anything elastic on the sleeve that would like touch my arm in that way. Like, oh no,
0: absolutely not the sleeve or the leg the elastic is so gross when you just like shift your shirt and you can see the line digging into your flesh i just it makes me feel so gross yeah and too. if you're sweaty it's just it's just not good so just not good trims and embellishments are the next thing we've kind of touched on this but you know things like sequins and embroidery those are embellishment but also think about snaps buttons buttonholes appliques the zippers I would say the trim that I cannot handle are cheap plastic side zippers. Like I, if you've had a dress like this, you know, my pain A couple wears in, it gets stuck at a certain point and you're stuck in the garment. I was on a date one time. This was in the early aughts and I was wearing a romper from H&M. It didn't have elastic waist, but it did have a side (laughs) zipper that was plastic under my arm and I went to the bathroom and, you know, took care of business, went to put my, pull my romper back up, zipped it halfway and it wouldn't zip the rest of the way. And (laughs) I was like trying everything I could. I had some hand lotion in my purse. I'm trying to like lube it up. And ultimately, a a woman came in the bathroom and like helped me. It took both of us. And we were both like, if we pull too hard, this is it. Yeah. And this was a really important date to me um so I couldn't go out there and like in a broken zipper I would have had to just like immediately leave and go home I wouldn't have been able to even say goodbye um but oh fortunately god, it all worked so out cool. um but I was in the bathroom for 35 minutes no <laughs> yeah 35
1: minutes oh my god I bet he thought you had food poisoning or something. I
0: know I know and I just to be like oh there was someone else in the was having problems with her clothes. I need to help her. But oh, so it's actually funny. me. Uh, so I hate a crappy plastic side zipper. Like I I just can't. I mean, the interesting thing about these bad zippers is that they're not just a fast fashion thing either. I, I've bought more expensive brands and, and had a similar experience. And I think zippers are really expensive to both install and just to buy, you know? And so they're also... Really challenging. Like, not every sewer can do it well. And so, there's still a lot of different margins of error. And if you have larger chests, it's a little bit more challenging. Just it's, it's, zippers are a rough business. Um, still not as bad, though, I guess, as a an elastic waist and a romper. And like, now I'm fixating on that.
1: <laughs> I am imagining, though, like, what could you do if you didn't have a zipper? And I just had an idea of you being Velcroed into the
0: <laughs> Like, I carry a Velcro. I will tell you that this was the beginning of me carrying safety pins, like a whole tin of oh safety pins God. with me everywhere, because theoretically, I could have safety pinned it a whole bunch of times, and it would have been not the most attractive thing. But if I had kept my one arm down the whole time, <laughs> I really thought it through. <laughs> so embellishments, trims, they generate cost. Next, this is something you're probably not thinking about, but the labels that are sewn inside. You know, there's the brand and size label. If you've ever gone down into the lower part of like a dress or a romper or your pants, you've probably seen additional tags that talk about country of origin and care instructions, and those are actually required by law. So, got to get those printed. Someone has to design them, they have to be printed, and they also have to be sewn in. And then hang tags for brands. I I hate hang tags because everywhere I've worked, we took them off before we put the product on the floor so like if we were selling Levi's we would remove all of the shenanigans that came on there before we hung it and added it to the sales floor so it's just like more garbage and it's like instant garbage you know
1: well and on the flip side when I was at ModCloth and we had stores um, before we had physical retail, we didn't have hang tags because it didn't matter. Yeah. Like, there's nothing, I mean, just coming in a poly bag and whatever, you know, it came from Mod Cloth. Um, but when we had the store, there was this, like, I don't even know, like feeling that we needed to have hang tags so that, like, these things had more, like, Mod Cloth branding on them so that, like, the customer really knew this is Mod Cloth branded product, blah, blah, blah. And so, We had to not only design and purchase hand tags or hang tags, but then because our our product was produced without them, someone had to manually safety pin them Uh. onto the garments.
0: I hate that. I'm
1: pretty sure they had the store associates do it because I don't think they, I think they were like, Oh, we're not going to buy enough for like, it wasn't like, Oh, we're going to add this into the cost of the product for right. everything because it was expensive. Cause I think they were like, I'm going to say not quite a dollar, but like a dollar. Cause they were really nice. Yeah. No,
0: that <laughs> sounds about right to me. I worked for a startup that had a similar practice and the hang tags were really expensive. There was special string and then special. There was special string. Yes. And then there was special string. And, and <laughs> special safety pins that were like at this place. And I went, yes. yeah. And so they were like matte black. They were not the kind of safety yes. pins I was carrying around in case I had a romper emergency. No. Right. No. So this like infuriates me because so much. You just take it off. I know. And it goes in the trash. It's just trash. It goes in the trash. <laughs> it's just, it's trash. just so gross. And it doesn't make me feel more connected to the brand. It's so Mm -hmm. stupid.
1: If anything, when I see it, especially the ones that are safety pinned on, I just get annoyed because I'm like, this is trash. I know. And I literally, and I feel somehow obligated to save the safety pin because I'm like, maybe I could reuse the safety (laughs) pin. But then it's like,
0: you literally just put it in the trash. Yeah. Well, the strange thing about those safety pins is that they are fine for holding on a tag, but they won't do anything else. Yeah, it's so really bizarre. Yeah, uh, no, they won't do anything. And I will say that They're not strong when I see that kind of like hang tag, safety pin combo, special string on a garment, I immediately lose respect for the retailer or brand associated with it. I'm like, they, they don't care about sustainability. They care about some random marketing blobby block googly gock that like tells them that they should be doing this to have like brand recognition that they don't need you know like it's just so so silly it's like giveaways at conventions you know it's like so silly it, just, it does it, it doesn't, doesn't it doesn't do anything right and think about it doesn't do anything think about how many hang tags and little special safety pins are in landfills right now because there's nothing you can do with them so yeah so labels tags more cost and as you know some it turns out some of these tags can cost a dollar which is my experience as well too we're talking like fancy cardstock. so next if you want these garments to fit well uh and make sense from a design perspective you have to pay specialized uh, designers and technicians to perfect the fit to do the technical design If you've ever bought something that had a zipper that was just a little too short or long for the garment, I see this a lot with really cheap dresses where the zippers may be only like four or six inches long at the back. And you're like, what? This means probably they didn't have the right technical design or they didn't have one at all. You know, that they sent a photo to the factory and were like, can you just try to mock this up somehow? So there's some more expense. And in this situation, the more you spend on something to make it right... Uh, the more the garment's going to cost, but in my feeling, in, this is my opinion, the more likely it's it's worth a greater cost to the customer, right? Because it's going to be a better experience. So next, this is this is not things are getting really dry, right? You probably thought we were done. You were like, okay, I see, I can picture the garment, I see the hang tag, I see the little <laughs> safety pin, but transportation, getting it from the factory to the retailer's warehouse or a fulfillment center. I mean, that that costs some money, right? So during the 60s, a long time ago, 95% of all clothing worn in the US was made in America. That's wild. Today, I know it's crazy to think about working in the industry now. Today, a mere, this is so depressing. Are you guys ready? Thinking about this, if you got this grade on a test, are you ready? Brace yourself. Two percent of American's clothes are made within domestic borders, as in here in the United States. So we're talking about a lot of shipping. And we're going to talk about how fast fashion has impacted that shipping in just a moment. But we're not just talking about fast fashion here. Um, Luxury brands, you know them like Gucci, Comme des Garcons, I, Louis Vuitton, I'm, I'm so not a luxury person. I have to like hesitate to think of them. They actually do the bulk of their manufacturing in Asia as well with just finishing happening domestically. So just enough to say something is made in Italy, it's, it's, it's still a lot of transportation, all of, all of the stuff that we associate with fast fashion. I will also say
1: though, just because something is made overseas and especially in China does not mean that it was made poorly and we're going to talk a little bit about the different kinds of factories um, later, but you can, you can get something made in China that is extremely, extremely, extremely well-constructed and well-produced and expensive and high quality. And you can get something that is, you know, that you would get from Alibaba or Amazon or whatever that would be cheap and is made of plastic. But I think it's important to clarify that there's, just because it was made overseas doesn't mean <laughs> that it's shit, and then and just because it was made in America, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's quality. It's certainly going to cost more to have the production done here because we ha- the minimum wage that we have to um, pay people here is certainly much higher than in China or in India. Um, but there's a whole gamut of of quality of production overseas.
0: I mean, and I would I would just to tag on there say. Made in the USA does not mean better. We yeah. at, at Nasty Gal we actually did a lot of knits, like t-shirts, bodysuits, underwear, here in the USA, and they were abysmal. And as Jenny mentioned, the the hourly wages hires were paying more for the help. Well, that the Nasty Gal customer didn't want to pay twenty extra dollars for a bodysuit because it was made in the USA, so we had to cut the cost out somewhere, and it was generally the fabric that suffered, and the sewing was just not not good you know, because the, the, the teams here like might be being paid more to sew, which is also not always true, but they're being rushed through it and working under also tough conditions, like no air conditioning in downtown LA. And we are going to have a future episode about Made in America. And I will tell you that the person who I'm working on it with, uh, said something that I've been thinking about ever since, which is made in the USA was the greenwashing before greenwashing. Oh my God. It's so true. So true. Right. It's, it's a marketing message. So anyway, moving on. So here's the deal. Shipping via ocean is cheaper, but it takes about a month to get to the retailer, right? So the boats are slow. I mean, they're actually moving really fast, but they're covering (laughs) a lot of space. (laughs) Uh, Air shipping takes just a few days, but it's also really expensive. And it's about 12 to 16 times the cost of shipping via boat. I mean, it's really expensive. So the cost of shipping is added to the cost of the garment for accounting purposes. And since retailers don't want to raise the price that the customer pays for the garment, as we've already talked about, they have to cut costs in other places if they want to ship via air. So it's cheaper fabrics, trims, less one less fit session, uh, maybe changing up the dye. Zara, I thought, okay, so I'm going to tell you, I've thought I was gonna dig into this and find out that Zara shipped 100% of their product via air, but it's actually only 40%, which is still a lot. But they have these crazy ships where they put the mostly finished product they load it on. And then in the month it takes to ship to the US, they do the finishing. So they sew on the tags, uh, Shut they up. add the hang tags. Boat? Yeah. Yeah. They do all the finishing. That is wild. So wild. I mean, they they are geniuses of cutting out all the costs.
1: That's innovative, to say the least. I know. Really,
0: actually cool, I think. It's its very cool. So when Janine and I were prepping for this episode, we talked sort of anecdotally about how we felt that there had been a huge shift from ocean to air shipping in, in, in our careers. Um, I couldn't find any data for the entire industry. But I will say that in the early aughts, when I began my buying career- shipping via air was very rare. And you often had to request special permission from upper management to do it. Like you had to make a really good case. Like we're going to run out. This is our number one style. Uh, Losing four weeks of sales would mean that we would lose, you know, this amount of money. Like you really had to come to the table with a compelling argument and then maybe upper management would sign off on it. But now in the past few years of my career, I have found that Air is more often what's happening and ocean is almost the exception.
1: Yeah. And I can attest to this too. Like when I was at Banana Republic, everything was by boat and I worked in non-apparel. So like socks and jewelry and whatever. And so jewelry is basically the lightest, smallest, most expensive thing that you could air. Uh, Doesn't take up space, isn't heavy, and you can still sell it for 25 or $30 or something like that. Um, and maybe, maybe once or twice a year, maybe you would get approved to air in jewelry, maybe, but everything, I mean, everything, everything was by, by boat. And then when I was at ModCloth, I don't think we ever, I don't think we, I was going to say boated anything. I don't think we ever, I don't think we ever received anything by boat. And I think during There was kind of an initiative sort of towards the end that was like this cost-saving initiative where they were trying to figure out, could we, we receive things by boat? But you have to build that additional month into your timeline. And by that point in our production, like go-to-market calendar, we just didn't have the month. And so maybe we could, we could maybe, uh, boat reorders of like, uh, basic t-shirts or basic sweaters or things like that, that it was just, we were just reordering something that we already had, but we certainly were never putting anything by boat that was brand new product because we didn't have the time. And so that really, that incentive to get things to market as fast as possible is also kind of indicative of this whole fast fashion trend, um, where it's really about getting the product to the customer in as little turnaround time as possible.
0: Absolutely. And I have noticed a trend also in terms of buying. You know, in the beginning of my career, we would place our orders almost six months out for certain categories because we want to accommodate for boat, we wanted to accommodate for extra fittings, quality assurance, et cetera. And so we would, without getting too granular about retail math, every month you get a number of receipts, which are your budget for how much you can buy that month and often we would fill almost all of those receipts in advance maybe we would let a little tiny open in case we needed to chase into a reorder of a surprise bestseller but in the past five or six years of my career i have noticed a shifting into only spending about half of that until the month before that delivery so that we can react fast chase into trends that we may have missed. There's also a lot of fearfulness about buying the wrong thing. I mean, you heard Janine mention that one of her jobs is to make sure we deal with stuff that no one wants to buy. And so we all are fearful of the things no one wants to buy. And so chasing at the very last minute and shipping stuff via air gives us a little extra reassurance that it's the right trend. So that's the air. That's, That's why air is more popular. And I think it's also important to mention that we we think of this like as a fast fashion thing. We think of it as like, you know, Forever 21 or Boohoo or Nasty Gap. But the reality is that the entire fashion industry has has adapted uh, or adopted, I'm sorry, adopted this yes. approach to buying, right? So they are all airing stuff in. So, you know, we could have a, a long conversation about semantics of fast fashion. Is Gap fast fashion? Is J Crew? Is Urban Outfitters? That's a whole other episode. But what I will say is that all brands have kind of become fast fashion because of this. That fast fashion is not what you think it is.
1: And I would also love to know, and I I doubt, I would highly doubt this data exists, but I would love to know if by placing these bets closer in, are you actually, are you making up the money that Mm. you're spending on the air, right? Because the whole point is like, oh, like, we can react to trend more and blah, blah, blah. And so we'll be able to make a more informed decision about the product that we're buying, that it's right for the customer. But because you are spe- just because you are spending this money and you're making the decision closer in doesn't necessarily mean that you actually picked a winner. <laughs> you can still you can still be wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah. I definitely worked places that are follow this fast fashion model of shipping and ordering and whatnot. And they're buying they have bought plenty. Of the wrong things, I mean, right? I mean,
1: because it's just a, <laughs> it's an impossible job, no matter what. But I would, I would love as a as a data driven person myself. Um, I would love to see to actually know is there the return on investment there, and you would have to have a lot of data over time for a lot of products, and you would have to have the the success rate of the the shipped product versus the aired product, but. I would be I would be really curious. And maybe it is. And maybe maybe there maybe that ROI is there. Um, but it certainly is something that adds a significant um significant amount to the final cost of the product for sure.
0: Yeah, my the wheels are turning in my brain. I'm like, who would give us 10 or 15 years of data so we could just look at it? It sounds so fun to me. <laughs> I want to get have, to the bottom I of it. I have some ideas, but I won't name names. <laughs> okay, we'll talk we'll talk about it later. Uh, so I will say that not only is air shipping more expensive and then impacting kind of the quality of our product when we finally receive it. It's also estimated that moving just 1% of garment transportation from ship to air cargo could result in a 35% increase in carbon emissions. That is rough. We're talking just 1%. So even just knowing, Janine and I haven't been able to give you any firm statistics here on the shift from ocean to air in the length of our career, but we know anecdotally it was pretty extreme. I just want you to think about the impact on carbon emissions that that shift has created and try not to get too depressed. depressed. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so, so that's transportation. Um, next I don't want to go too hard into this, but this is part of the cost in some places you work and that is design and production loads. So basically what this is, someone in finance adds up all the salaries and operating budgets for the production and design department departments they'll model out how many units in in-house design product the brand is gonna buy that year. They sort of desi- they divide the total budget by the number of units. This is a really simplified version. But they come to a cost per unit that's called the load, and that gets added onto the cost. So in a huge company where almost all the product is in-house designed, that load is, can be pretty small, generally less than a dollar, a very small percentage of, of the total cost of the garment. To name names here, because this company doesn't exist anymore, at Nasty Gal, our load was five to ten dollars, which is insane. Which just is insane because I mean we haven't talked numbers yet, but the
1: average cost for I would, I mean, a, let's say just a a knit top would probably be like five dollars, and then like a dress could be fifteen or twenty dollars. So adding five to ten dollars is like adding at a minimum an additional twenty five percent to the cost
0: which is crazy insane insane yeah so it meant in a lot of categories it didn't make financial sense for us to buy in-house product which is bad news right basically what it means if your load has to be 5 to 10 dollars a garment as opposed to maybe a buck or less what are you
1: even doing
0: it means that your i know it means that your company is spending way too much on design and production in proportion to the size of the business. And I can say at Nasty Gal, we had more designers and production people than we had buyers. Like it was huge. And in-house product was an initiative, but we could just never get it right, like from a price point perspective. And on our site, the most expensive stuff we sold was the in-house design product. And it was all really, really cool but it was the least profitable. It was very niche and it was the least profitable part of our business. Absolutely. And I do like when people ask me like, what do you think happened at Nasty Gal? I usually give them a list about four or five things, but that's one of them. Like it just was drowning us financially.
1: I will say though, kudos to them for doing the fully loaded cost because during my time at Mod Cloth and when I first started working there, um, our in-house production, so Products, clothing, and products that we produced ourselves uh, was probably only about 15% of sales. Um, and then there was an increasing effort over the years to drive larger and larger contribution of sales from um in-house production for a variety of reasons reasons. Um One of them being that it was proprietary. So this was product you couldn't get anywhere else. And so that was a reason to come to the site. And then also in theory, (laughs) it has a better margin because you, because you're not paying a middleman for it. Right. Right. Um, But we were never able to, to get to and agree on what this fully loaded cost was. And I don't, to be honest, because I wasn't, it's a cost accounting catastrophe, I will say, and just like a huge work driver. But to Amanda's point, it's relatively simple. Like take take all of the salaries of all the people that work on this stuff and sort of figure it out. I venture to guess it's because any given year, the amount of products that we produced in house varied widely. So like one year, maybe we were producing, I don't know, 30, 30 garments per month. And then Maybe another, maybe that went up to 150 at some point, right? <laughs> well, probably not that high, but like probably like 120. Yeah. And so, but you're still paying those people the same thing. So that cost per product is going to really vary quite widely. And then also our quantities that we were buying were also going all over the place, too. So I think at some point they're just like, forget it. Like this is too, this is too complicated and, and we, we're we just going to manage to our bottom line anyways. And we're not going to worry about this. Um, so I am actually, I have to give like credit where credit's due from a cost accounting perspective and say kudos on them <laughs> if they figured it out. And, and, and also had a real number like that five to $10, I'm surprised that somebody didn't see that number and just torpedo the entire project because that number would have said this isn't a business that we should be in. I so I'm actually surprised (laughs) that like somebody figured out what the number was, realized it was astronomical, and then chose to proceed with like waving this flag that like I mean maybe it was just some like you know really really honest accounting person that was just like this is the number, this is the hill I'm dying on because. (laughs) That should have been that metric and data point alone should have been enough reason for them to either stop doing that entirely or to significantly change the way that they were doing it. So yeah, that's probably reason. That's (laughs)
0: probably reason why they went. I mean, it's definitely. uh, (laughs) I can't stop laughing because I have to tell you. First off, any of my friends from Nasty that are listening to this are also laughing, but in that like. In that way, that's both evil and angry, <laughs> sad at the same time. Uh, oh because, yeah, it would, it would make sense that you'd be like, okay, something doesn't add up here, right? But ultimately, and I could talk about this for hours, it's, I've learned so much about the mistakes you can make in business from that job alone. <laughs> uh, the idea was that came from upper from the top was that, hey, let's just take up the retail prices, I mean, Nasty house premium anyway. And uh, it turned out our customer was like, no. No. <laughs> so uh, then it was just like even more. than we're marking this stuff down. We've already paid this crazy load. I mean, no matter what, we're paying that load because the operation right. costs for the company are this huge design and production team. And I will say... Not to insult them because all of the people who worked in design and production there were some of the most talented people I've ever met. Like they were worth the money and it's sad that they couldn't execute all the product they were able to because the, everything was such a mess financially. It had nothing to do with them. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really a game of economies of scale. Yeah. And you can make it work if you have the scale. And this was also like the, a mis- I'll just say mistake that Mod cloth made or or just something that like we had to contend with was as a growing emerging brand, we couldn't possibly justify the quantities that we needed to buy in order to get the economies of scale to make the costing work so that we didn't have that five to ten dollar load that we had like a lower a low like a two dollar load or a dollar fifty load or something like that mm-hmm. um, and so. Over time, we were able to get there, cause, but you can't just. Start, you, it's it's really difficult to just start a business and start a brand where you're selling 2,500 units of like a single piece. Yeah, it's just really hard to do that. And so, like when I first started at Modcloth, we were buying anywhere from like 80, probably on the low end, 80 units of a product. Wow. 80, 80 to 150, I would say, in private label. 80 to 120 was like an average buy. Uh, on on the you know sort of lower end and then 300 was absolutely a max and so you're just not going to get economies of scale <laughs> with with that um, with that type of with those quantities and so we worked our way towards buying thousands of units of things 2500 3000 i think we bought 5000 of a beret i don't even want to talk What? About a
0: long
1: story. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a dark place. Um, but I mean, that's how you get, that's how you can justify, okay, if I, if I have to pay 10 people's salary or whatever, when you split it over five, 5,000 units of something, it becomes, it becomes less, like less of a cost versus when you're buying 120 units or 80 units of something, it just becomes ridiculous yeah so
0: and I will say I'm, this is not on our pre-discussed outline of what we're going to discuss but now that we're talking about it uh last night my good friend Kim texted me very late at night to tell me that Need Supply and Toto Kylo were closing and immediately our conversation okay. was they went way too hard into private label like Making your own product is so expensive and it's not, yeah, it's so hard. It's not just the designers and the tech support and the graphic designers making the labels. It's also the minimums that you need to place in order to have a style made. And it's just so expensive. It eats up a lot of cash flow. It's very risky because in that situation, when your average buy for a product is 80 units and you even have to write 300 units in order to have something made, if that's the wrong product, the repercussions are horrible. Yeah. So we're, we're going to get to that soon. We are, are <laughs> going to get to that. So one last thing in the cost, I feel like we're like baking a cake here and now we're just like the last ingredient we're going to add is like the vanilla extract, right? And that is the factory. Like, yes, we're paying people to sew the stuff at the factory, but we also, the factory needs a cut too, right? And the factory partnership or lack thereof is very complicated. So one thing that I see people discussing the most on the internet when they talk about garment production is this misconception that most retailers own their factories. Reality is they do not. Uh, It's actually risky to own your own factory because as we'll talk about in future episodes, different regions of different countries do different things as their strongest suit and they can't do other things and they don't have access to other materials. And to have just one factory that you own would be a, a grave mistake. So often, uh, retailers work via agents who find the factories and they transmit the information back and forth. The agents take a cut as well. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, based on your experience, Janine, what do you think is one of the biggest drawbacks of working with these agents?
1: I mean, just complete lack of transparency. You just have no idea what's going on. And that... So if you can imagine if you were any brand starting to be a new brand right now, how would you even go find a factory in China or in India or in Indonesia or something like, and how would you even know where to go? Um, I think I remember correctly that like a lot of Victoria's secret underwear is made in Indonesia. And I don't know why I remember that, but how would you even know, Oh, If I want a factory that makes good underwear or at least mediocre underwear, I should go to Indonesia. (laughs) Like you wouldn't, you don't like, if you're starting out, you don't, without doing a ton of research. And then even if you were to go there, how would you get an introduction to somebody who's going to take a meeting with you? Um, I actually don't know what language they speak in Indonesia. So how are you going to communicate with this person? Uh, How are you going to know that you're not going to get taken advantage of? What's a good deal versus what's not a good deal? Say you met with this person and maybe their quality was good, but they were giving you an astronomical price. How would you negotiate it, or would you just leave because you weren't going to get a good deal? Like you just you, in fact, you don't have a lot of agency in this situation. So you need someone who does, um, who can help you source a factory and getting finding a good factory is a huge part of getting a well-made product in the end. Um, and there there's naturally needs to be a lot of trust there. And so just trying to get a fact, just trying to find a factory is a monumental task. Trying to find a good factory for a, a fair price is also a monumental task. Also, you can imagine um, that... Like I was at a farmer's market last weekend and there was like, there was all these produce stands, but then there was like the one produce stand that apparently was the good produce stand. And there was like a huge line for it and then no lines at any of the other stands. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, that must be the good produce stand. And so similarly with factories, they, the ones that are the good factories with that are doing good work for good prices, they have a long line or they're like, you, you need to work with us. And so when I was at ModCloth and we were doing this 120 units, 300 units like thing, no one would even work with us even if we paid them like, like an absurd price per piece because they're like, it's not worth our time. Like, where's your, where's your 1500 units? Like you're not worth it to us. Um, and so, especially when you're starting out, you don't, you don't have the negotiating power or anything like that. So it's really important to even have, it's even, it's, it's not important, but it's, um, it's an amazing resource to even have an agent as an option. Cause if you're just out there on your own, you, I mean, I think you would get taken advantage of not only in price and quality and everything, you would just get totally screwed. But when you have an agent, because there's this middleman, you really don't know they may, I mean, they probably would let you go visit some factory, but would you even know that this factory is actually producing your goods versus the one next door versus the one that's 40 miles inland that you've never even seen. And so you, you may think that you know what you're getting, but you really don't. And even maybe say they like run a line for you. So you come and visit when they're producing your red t-shirt or whatever. Okay. Just because like these hundred or so units of this red t-shirt were produced here, doesn't mean, that they haven't subcontracted out the other 400 units and like all of the white t-shirts are being made someplace else and so you just lose a lot of that transparency when you're working with an agent but I would also just say this like retailers claim to have to, to have an understanding of what's going on with their factories and just as someone who's worked in the business and this is completely anecdotal, this is my opinion, this is not necessarily based on facts. I just don't really know how you can unless you really have a really good, strong working relationship and you're constantly visiting and checking in and even then you don't really know. And and people will try to pull a fast one on you because they can. Um, And so yes, you could in theory own your own factories but that's just so unlikely. I mean, as, as you were saying about everybody has their own specialty, there's a denim factory, there's a knit factory, there's a shoe factory, there's a belt factory, there's a, this, a, that, whatever underwear, all these different things that any, any uh, retailer would produce has their own specialty, like a woven shirt, especially like a nice men's woven shirt. You know, every factory is going to have their own specialty of what they're good at and so you would ha- you would, you na- you naturally need to be in business with a lot of different factories to produce everything to get a good quality product and you would just never own innumerable factories like that unless maybe you were a Walmart when i was at old maybe old navy but even then i actually don't think they own their factories i'm not sure like um and even if we remember, like the really sad incident in Bangladesh, like I forget, like that was probably ten years ago or so now, maybe a little bit less, uh, where that factory collapsed, and it was like called out that like H and M and Gap and all these people like had business in this factory. Those were giant retailers. If H and M can't own their own factory, if Gap can't own their own factory because it doesn't make sense, then like the tiny people are not going to do it either. And so, like all that's to say is that like it logically makes sense that you work with a ton of different factories. And when the more factories you work with, the harder it is to know what's going on with each individual one. And I think the giant, the giant companies like gap, like H and M, because they're so big, they like a gap, they have a whole, I don't even know what they're called, but like factory management, sustainability ethics, like department of people that work in San Francisco, in the HQ, and then also have like on the ground people in China and in the other places to manage these like factories and make sure things are going, uh, are being done ethically. But can a tiny company have that? Could ModCloth have that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> like, there's no way. And, and no way. Even when no. ModCloth was making, yeah. dra- doing you know 150 million dollars in revenue per year, there was no way that we could have ever like what could have ever had that kind of team it just was cost prohibitive um and so you you have I'm just saying like I guess you don't have to but there there is some element of a lack of transparency and the lack of knowing really what's how your clothes are being produced in any type of retailer you just really I, I personally just think that you really can't have complete transparency and complete knowledge unless you're really watching where every single unit was produced. And that's just not possible.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's why Like, I always think of this as an example, Everlane. I
1: was just thinking that too.
0: Yeah. For all of the ethical and sustainable issues that Everlane speaks to, they never address the manufacturing. And I think that's because my hope is they know that that would be uh, that could just be a whole can of bees waiting to get the lid ripped off like because they just they just don't know it's probably okay but it might not yeah, be it's okay. okay right but it might not be and so be really really bad look for them to promise that right and then one of their factories to collapse in like a year right. you know one of the factories they're working with
1: it's like oh that's what you built your whole brand on
0: <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> So, also, just important to add that these agents who connect you with factories and kind of manage that relationship, they also take a fee. Oh, yeah. So, you know, oh, they're expensive. it's a percentage. They're very expensive. They're expensive. But <laughs> as Janine said, they're doing so much stuff that the brands can't do on their own. Yeah. I mean, they're building those relationships, they're on the ground, they're the experts, and they Keep it going. You know, they hold the factories accountable when things don't go right. And the last piece of the puzzle, which I'm barely going to talk about because it's so complicated and it's really boring, are duties and tariffs. And like, I maybe someday we'll talk about duties and tariffs in length, but it's basically like, you know, you got to pay to import stuff into the United States. And I'm sure you've heard all kinds of wackadoo stuff going on with our current president and raising duties against China making imports more challenging for us in this very foolish attempt to bring manufacturing back into the United States. That's all I'm going to say about that. Cause I could go down a really big rabbit hole, <laughs> but it can really be expensive. I mean, it can add a few dollars onto the cost, which once again, this is for like sure. a sense game. So a dollar is like a hundred cents. It's yeah, yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's me, Amanda, again. Janine and I had such a blast talking that was what was meant to be an hour-long episode turned into almost three hours of talking shop. So surprise! This episode is ending with, stay tuned next week for the conclusion of this week's episode. Next week, we will be continuing the conversation by talking about margin and, well, WTF is margin along with why ethically manufactured products should be more expensive, and then the disappointing truth about why they are actually more expensive. We will also touch on the hashtag payup controversy ripped from the headlines. Questions, comments, corrections, or maybe just something you would like to hear in a future episode of Clothes Horse, you can reach us the semi-old-fashioned way, otherwise known as email, at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find us on the gram at close horse podcast. Extra super special. Thanks to Dustin Travis white for creating our amazing music while also acting as an incredibly patient and audio engineer and one man AV crew. Thank you so much for listening. Please come back next week.